Hey, good morning, Watermark. I'm glad you all could join us here. Um, I hope things are well. I hope you've gotten into sort of a groove of life. Um, we're continuing through the book of Acts. Um, before I get going this morning, I wanted to encourage you, if you find yourself in need in any way, if you find yourself, um, if you have lost your job and um, that, that 1200 bucks just burned right through, um, if you burned all through that and, and, and you find yourself in need, reach out to us. Um, we are looking for places that we can help however we can. If you just need somebody to talk to you, um, you can email elders at Watermark Tampa. You can, um, you can reach out through the website portal, whatever you'd like. Um, we want to know how we can help. Um, one of the things I think I'm finding is that um, we're kind of, because we're not seeing each other and having regular conversations like in real life every week, uh, we're kind of in the dark about how everybody is doing. Certain people have reached out and certain people are in communication, but there's a lot of people who are not. Um, and so I oftentimes find myself wondering how they're doing. And some of them aren't on Facebook. So reach out to people, reach out to each other, communicate with each other. Um, if there are needs, if you know of somebody who has a need in our community and isn't likely to reach out for whatever reason, um, reach out for them. We can help. Um, so today, we're continuing through Acts chapter 7. Last week, we did um, the first sort of half of Stephen's defense in front of the Sanhedrin. Today, um, we're going a little farther. I was, I was thinking about going the whole rest of the way, but I'm going to break this into two more passages because there's, there's some things we need to see in here. So I guess we're going to do this in thirds. Um, so let me set the stage for you once again. Um, we are, we're going to start off today in... Uh, in, in, uh, in verse 17. And Stephen is, is retelling the story of the, of, of the scriptures, the story about God. Um, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin. He's been falsely accused of two things, of speaking against Moses and the law and speaking against the temple. And he has not spoken against either. Today, we're going to launch into sort of the Moses part. Next week, we're going to talk about the temple part and his defense of himself. I don't even know if we can call it a defense. He just takes this opportunity rather than to defend himself to actually launch into a retelling of the story of God's people um, with God at the center, not God's people. So this is important because the Sanhedrin, the people he's standing in front of are a, a nationalistic group of leaders. They have allowed um, the mindset of the Israelites to become over the last couple hundred years before them to become very nationalistic. At this point, what they care about is their earthly kingdom of Israel, establishing that. And their plan is, their thought process is um, that when God sets up his kingdom, it's going to be this thing like that, that where they, they, they build an army up and they're gonna, their Messiah is going to show up and lead them into battle and overthrow Rome. And this is sort of what they're waiting for. Um, so they have a lot of national pride. They look at the Roman, Romans who are ruling over them, who are living there as um, unclean. And just the fact that the Romans are there around them and ruling over them makes the entire land unclean. Um, and so they need to be purged out of the empire. This is how they're sort of thinking. It's, it's, it's very sort of earthly mindset, if you will. Um, so their understanding of God's plan is that God will eventually purge the land of their Roman oppressors and set up his kingdom. Um, and he's going to use military might. That's, that's how they think this is going to go. And this is a lot of the struggles leading up to the resurrection of Christ in the early Christians, they, are, they have this mindset as well. John the Baptist sends a question to Jesus on his deathbed. He says, are you really the one 
that we're looking for, the one who is to come, or is there another that we should be looking for? Because Jesus doesn't seem to like have this messianic zeal for purging the land of all non-Jews as they do. And there's even sometimes where people are walking up to Jesus and he reveals them, he heals them or whatever, and they realize he's the Messiah and he tells them, don't tell anybody. He's trying to like stamp down this zeal for violence. He's like, don't, it's sort of like, they call it the messianic secret in biblical scholarship. Like, don't tell people who I am. They're not ready yet. They don't understand. I haven't displayed to them God's love that we see on the cross. So their understanding of God's plan is very different from what God's plan would actually be. And so at the moment, um, the Sanhedrin that Peter, that, I'm sorry, Stephen is standing in front of, they've partnered with King Herod. He is this half Jewish, um, half Greek, half Gentile, right? Half Jewish, half Gentile king over the land that the Jewish people are living in. Um, and they allow him to reign because he's half Jewish. And so he's provided them with this beautiful temple that they now worship in and, and rule from over the Israelite people. And so Stephen has begun to tell these people their story, but instead of the story that they recognize, that is about them, that is about Israel at the center and Israel's land and Israel making Israel great again, right? Like that's the whole idea. They want to make it like the time of David. Um, Stephen deconstructs that story and tells them something that is not centered on them, that in fact their story has God at the center, not them. And so Stephen has begun to tell them their own story. He's made God the center figure of it and not Israel. And for him, the story is about God's faithfulness, despite an unfaithful partner. So the entire story in the mind of Stephen and the early Christians is meant to show our unfaithfulness, yet God's faithfulness to us, okay, in the covenants, that God doesn't forsake us. So Israel's place in the story is passive. They are instruments in the hands of the doctor. The doctor is fixing and restoring creation. And Israel is not the doctor. Israel is the instruments that the doctor is using to perform sort of the restorative surgery. Um, And so their role as passive instruments is to wait. It's to listen for God. It's to maintain their faithfulness. That's their role. To be the standing image, idol, if you will, of God. When people look at the idol, they know what God looks like. That's their role. And as they wait, um, you can see God move by bringing forth this this whole new instrument to do his work. So let's look at the passage today. We're going to start at verse 17. Right now, we're we're going to go piece by piece, 17 through 19. It says this, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promises to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and and, and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Pause here for a second. So verse 17, at the very beginning, it has them waiting for a time to draw near. It says, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promises. And, and just it talks about the number of people of the Israelites grew and grew and grew. So God has them in this time of waiting, of being faithful and waiting for God to do his thing. Now let's go to verse 20 through 22. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was carried by his family. When he was placed outside, the Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. So let's stop there for a second. Both of these passages start with 
a, the same reference. Both of these start with a reference to the time. Uh, the time drew near in verse 17. Um, the time that Moses was born is verse 20. Um, both of these passages start with a reference to time. And I've talked about this idea before. I'm going to dive into this again and give you a little bit of a review. Um, the words used here for time is not chronos. Um, in, the, in, the, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, um, that the early church was using, the word here would not have been chronos. That's the Greek word for actually minutes and hours, okay? The Greek word that the, uh, that the Bible uses here for this passage in, in the Greek text is this word kairos, okay? Now, this is a word that doesn't mean minutes. It's not literal movement of time. It is moments, which is different from minutes. Now, I've talked about this before. Again, I taught about five years ago, and I think I taught about it, I touched on it about three years ago. Um, quick, quick review, because if you, if, you, if you were there and you heard this, then you remember what I'm talking about. Um, chronos is qualitative. Kairos is quantitative. Chronos is a, member, a measurement of seconds and minutes, and this is all through the scriptures, this word is used. But there are certain times when it refers to not minutes, but moments in time. It refers to the right moment, the opportune moment, the perfect moment. Um, this is the word kairos that is used. Um, there's this passage in Ecclesiastes that says to everything, um, everything has a time. There's a time to plant. There is a time to, to reap. There, uh, there is a time to sow. There is a time for, for to be born, a time to die. The, word that are used, the words that are used there is not chronos in the entire thing. It's about moments. It's about these quantitative opportune moments in which things happen. And it's, it should be read differently, okay? It's, this is not just a random thing. So the Greek personification of Kairos um, is this god named Lysippos. Whenever they were, whenever, um, I'll have a picture of it here or here. I don't know. Um, whenever the ancient people talked about this idea of kairos and moments, they had these personifications of these, of these figures in their heads to drive home the point. So the personification of kairos is this god named Lysippus. And he's always depicted as, as running on his tiptoes, right? He's running and he's got wings on his feet um, because he is said to never stop and fly like the wind. He's fast. He moves fast. The moments fly by. Um, and he holds a razor in his right hand. That little shape, that sort of half moon shape is a razor, an ancient razor that you would shave your head with. Um, and in his, so in his right hand is this razor because he is said to be sharper than any edge. Um, his hair, he has like this early 90s sort of punk rock skater haircut, just a bunch of hair in the front. I had a brother that had that haircut and he bleached it. Um, uh, he had he had hair just on the front of his head right here, um, so that if you see him coming, you can grab onto his hair by the forelocks. This is all metaphorical, obviously. If you see the idea is this: if you see the moment coming, you can grab it. But once it gets past you, there's no hair on the back of his head. So once it passes you, it races by, and there's nothing to grab. Like it's gone. The moment's gone. So seize the moment when you see it coming. So you have to be aware. Um, of the meaning in the moment and sees that meaning while it's happening because once it's gone, you can't stop it. You can't go back and look upon it again. Um, so in the minds of the ancient people, in their minds, this is the weight of that word. It will never stop moving. It will be gone sooner than you realize at this moment. It will cut deeply into your life. It leaves this permanent scar on you. 
um, these permanent marks in your life, um, these, these moments that pass through always leave a, a, sen- leaves a, a permanence on you, right? It's something that, that reminds you to always be awake and alert and looking for the goodness in the whole thing. Because if you see it coming, again, then you can grab it, you can seize it. But if not, then you will always look back and you will say, I wish I had seized that moment. I wish I had been more present in that time when I had the chance to actually do the work, to grab the meaning, to hold on to it. Because once it's gone, it's gone, okay? That is Kairos. That is way different than Kronos. Um, And so Kairos is the moment when things change. Um, And all of Kronos is spent waiting. Kronos is when you wait. Kairos is when you learn. So in Kronos, there is Kairos. There are these moments. Okay, so um, the moment finally came um, for Israel. They were waiting chronological chronos they're waiting right and then there are these moments in the waiting that god injects the meaning and so this moment finally came and the faithfulness of god was put on display now stephen's going to point out three of those moments in the life of moses and he uses the word kairos for every one of them Um, the faithfulness of god was put on display in a child uh, that god brought down a totally different path so they're waiting they're wondering is god faithful still has god is God righteous? Is God keeping his end of the covenant, the bargain? Is God righteous? And there's these moments when God reveals his righteousness to them, his faithfulness to the covenant. That's, again, if you were here last week, that's how we translate that word. That's, that's the meaning of the word. Um, now, with that in mind, let's keep reading. Uh, let's start at verse 23. We'll go to 29. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. And so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you? ruler and judge over us. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Okay, that's verse 29. We're going to stop there. Um, If you sat under my teaching long enough, then you may have also picked up on two other references that are made here in this passage. Um, One of them is right here. Uh, in verse 23. The other one is next in verse 30. Um, It says this, verse 23 says, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Uh, Verse 30, it says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Do you see the uh, sort of the parallel message there? 40. That is what keeps popping up. Now, what does 40 mean? You remember, hopefully. Um, this, is, uh, this is baptism language, all right, for the, uh, for the ancient Israelites. Uh, 40 in the Bible is baptism language. Uh, someone goes through something for a measure of 40, and then they are brought into a brand new way of following God. Here we have two of these in this passage. You have, you have Moses being raised in the palace, in the temple, 
for 40 years. And when he's 40, he finally visits his own people. So that 40 was leading to sort of an awakening, a new thing, okay? Um, and then in verse 30, after 40 years had passed of him raising his two sons as a shepherd in a foreign land, hiding his identity, an angel appears after, after 40 years, an angel appears um, to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. Now, uh, 40 years hiding his identity and then a burning bush in the desert talks to him. 40. Now, uh, 40 days the earth was baptized in water in the book of Genesis uh, so that the filthy sinful past can be put behind humanity and we can begin again. 40 days Moses spent on Sinai so that God could set these people apart and, and make them a new people in the world. 40 years God's people wandered in the wilderness to, to put away a spirit of unfaithfulness so that they could enter into the promised land and be a new people. 40 days Goliath taunts God's people before God raises a king to King David to lead them into a whole new way of being. 40 days at Nineveh that Jonah is pronouncing judgment before they repent and change. Okay. And lastly, 40 days, I mean, there's more than this, but the last one I'm going to talk about is 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted so that he could then begin his ministry. 40, in the mind of the Israelites, always had to do with sort of a baptism, putting an old behind, going through something so that we can come out changed on the other side. So for 40 years, the sons of Israel have lived, the, the son of Israel, um, Moses, this son of Israel, has lived in a palace in this opulence while all of his brothers and sisters that were his same age were being slaughtered and killed by the Egyptians in this violent outburst at trying to tamp down the population of Israel. But Moses miraculously survives in a basket made of like, and floated in the water and saved by the Pharaoh's daughter. And now he is raised in opulence, in complete opulence in the, in the palace with the king. So that 40 years later, when he enters in and sees, he, it says, it literally, like, let's go back and read that. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people. It's almost like he, he had never visited them. He, he didn't actually, he wasn't familiar with the people that he belonged to. And so he goes to visit them. And when he sees them and the way that they're living, compared to the way he was raised, his heart is stirred and he's mournful of the whole thing. <coughs> Excuse me. And he has this heart for the oppressed people of Israel, for his people. This boy was saved from a suffering people and raised in opulence so that he could know what it was like when he returns to his people and this passion would be stirred in him, okay? That 40, that 40 years had a purpose, 40 years of goodness, so that this could weigh heavy upon him, that this is what I have and that's what they have, so that he could make this comparison. Look at how my brothers and sisters are living, okay? Let's go to verse 30. Let's keep reading. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. I have come down to set them free. Now come, 
I will send you back to Egypt. Another 40 years. Now, there's probably people, Israelites, thinking to themselves, how dare, you know, once this was all over, how dare things not be settled in this moment or that moment or that moment when we were suffering? How dare God wait to fix this? It's a question I sometimes have. Why aren't things the way that they should be? What is taking so dang long? Am I really, am I really waiting for some rich guy somewhere's eyes to be opened? Is that what's happening? Is there a kid living in a palace somewhere and he's going to live in 40 years of opulence so that God can open his eyes to what I'm going through? Is that the situation? Am I really waiting for a child of privilege raised in a king's palace to hear a burning bush to, to speak to him? Am I waiting? Is that what I'm doing? And so the answer for Stephen, for the early Christians, and for a lot of God's people who were paying attention, the answer was no. Your job is not just simply to sit and wait. Each moment is a moment of planting, is a moment of faithfulness, obedience, of keeping the story alive. Each chronos, each minute, also has a kairos. Um, it's a moment in which God is doing something. Uh, the struggle for us to see it, that's, that's the struggle. The struggle is for us to like to see it and to take part in it. Um, the very fact that this story is preserved and told, the story of the Israelites, the story of a people in bondage who are then set free, the very fact that this story is preserved and told means that it had meaning in and of itself. You can sit and you can read this ancient story and you can say, why didn't God do something? Why didn't God do something? You wouldn't have a story. People living in bondage for thousands of years now, all over the world. They read this story and they see the faithfulness of God and they are encouraged because they themselves are in bondage. And so as it turns out, their bondage was actually their time spent in Kronos waiting was actually a Kairos in its own. The fact that they were for so long in bondage and then God brings them a rescuer. And there's this detailed story of how this goes down. Maybe one of the reasons that this all happened was because later on, maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred years later, there would be a family sitting around in bondage reading that story. And so the, the kairos is there. The moment is there. The reason is there. The weight of it all is there. Some will wait for 40 years so that future generations will know that they had to wait 40 years. There's meaning in it all. Um, and if the story is about you, this can be very upsetting. But if it's about God's faithfulness through human history, then the meaning is found, the kairos in the chronos. Um, if, if the story is about you, there's things I have to accomplish in my life. I have to get stuff done by the time I die. I'm only here for a short amount of time. If the story is about you, then yes, the, the, the thing's unfair and it's unjust. But if the story is about God's faithfulness, despite humans inflicting incredible suffering upon each other and God moving the story forward, 
then it's different. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it seem fair either. The time always, though, finds its purpose. And the hand of God can only be found by the humble, by the watchful, by the waiting. And so when I ask the question, like, why is Stephen telling the story this way? Why is he reminding the people of their suffering that they went through? Why is, I mean, he's telling those people their own story, their own past, their own history. Well, because by the end of the speech, Stephen's going to put a mirror in their face and reveal to them that their entire history consists of them trying constantly to force God to conform to their own will and not the other way around. That has been their history. If you skip down to the last part of Stephen's speech, he, he puts his finger in their face and he says, you always wanted control, but you couldn't have it. You don't get control. They always wanted to move forward in their own way. And so when, God's peop- when, when God sent people to teach them, they murdered them, the prophets. It says that they resisted the Holy Spirit inside of them constantly. And that there was never, here's a quote from him, uh, there was never a prophet or ancestor that you did not persecute. They wanted control over their own story. They wanted it. But they couldn't have it. You don't get control over your story. You don't get to decide what enters into the story. They wanted to move forward in their own way. And in in the day of Christ, in, in Jesus' time, they... They wanted that to be this violent uprising against Rome. But that isn't what God has given them. And so they spend their history fighting against the path of God. And one could argue that they're slowing down the progress of God's kingdom and the establishment of that kingdom. And finally, God's faithfulness It stays on track. And then finally, God would send someone who was so obedient to the spirit of God within him that allowed himself to be led by the spirit that that was so obedient that in the moment of his death, he's going to cry out and say, not my will, but yours be done. This is what Israel was always supposed to be. This is what God's people were always supposed to be. If they wanted the world to be restored, if they wanted the true reconciliation and restoration of all things to God, then their posture was always supposed to be, not my will, but yours be done. And when he likely thought, Jesus, when he likely thought there was no way he was going to survive this, he's still crying out, not my will, but yours be done. He had faith that, that, that if he moved forward in trust to his father, that if he kept on the path, that these moments would somehow become a part of the redemption story. And they did, okay? That story of those hundreds of years spent in, in enslavement in Egypt, that is the pinnacle point of Israel's story. Even today, the Jewish people sit around and tell each other that story. You know who God is? God is the one who brought us out of bondage. The focus has shifted. to the faithfulness of God. Um, And I would argue that that has fueled their faithfulness to God ever since. With everything the world has put them through, 
when they sit in their suffering, what do they do? They gather around and they retell the story once again. And so that's what we do as well. We retell the story of our Messiah, of Christ, who in the moment when he was hitting the brick wall and everything seemed to be failing and falling apart and he's about to be killed, and his teachings didn't seem to change really anybody, everyone had abandoned him. Every one of his disciples had abandoned him. And he cries out, not my will, but yours be done. And this is the story we tell that helps us get through difficult times. Um, all of this to me, the way this kind of hits me and works out in my life um, is that when I'm heading into a situation, I'm trying to remember a situation that is difficult, something I don't do well with, something that's going to be very, very hard to do. Um, one of the things that I, I'm trying to prayerfully remind myself of is that I don't get to control anything but my own personal response to it. That's all I get to control. Um, the situation is out of my hands. I was once called to, uh, to go and pray with a family um, in the church whose father was passing away. And the family called and said, I, we, we think he's going to pass today. We'd like to know if you could come and pray over him and the family over his deathbed. So I, I show up at the hospital and I'm a bit nervous and I don't, I don't do well with death. Um, I don't, there's some pastors who are really good at dealing with death. I'm, I'm not one of them. And I'm never quite sure of myself of what to say, what to do. You never quite know what your role is um, or what your role will turn out to be in certain moments of life. You're kind of oftentimes you're walking into a situation and you don't know in the moment, like, what's my role going to be here? You have ideas of how, uh, of like the role that you play, but you enter into a situation and things change. And so sometimes all you can do is enter in knowing that you will soon learn what your role is in that space. It's more like an act of faith. And when I'm entering in sometimes as a pastor to somebody's deathbed to pray with them, part of me, I'm, I'm walking on faith. Um, and so I take a moment before I enter the room and I affirm that God already knows what's going to happen in there. He's already in there. He's working and he's gone before me. And I am simply like Israel, a tool in the hands of the surgeon that is restoring the life of the world. Okay. Um, also that he is already at some point that God has in my past at some point given me something that I need for this moment. It's, I don't know what it is yet. I will soon know. Um, but at some point in my life, I trust that God has equipped me with something to bring into the situation. Okay. And so in this particular situation, the family calls and yeah, I, I'm walking into, I've never, I've never met the man and I'm walking in and I enter and I stand with the family next to the man. And, and one of them asks, Hey, could you read the man's favorite passage from the scripture? I said, sure. I have my Bible and they're like, okay, uh, what's the passage? And they're like, it's John 14, three. So I open up my Bible and I turn there and I begin reading and here's what it says. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And I ended that right there. And suddenly I realized what God had given them, had given me for them. 
I realized why I was standing there. Um, because I understood a historical context, the historical context of this passage, and it filled my mind. And instantly, I looked at them and I said, after I finished, I looked at them and I said, this is a wedding. And they all kind of turned and looked at me as if to say, keep going. And so I did. Um, and I pointed out that when a young Jewish couple are getting married, the boy goes to bid and begins to build an addition onto his father's house, which um, after generations of living there is like a building with many rooms because after generation after generation, these rooms are built onto this father's house. And when the space is finally done, the father inspects it. And when it's done, the boy goes to get his bride and to lead her back to her true, true home. So he could come in the daytime. He could come in the middle of the night. She has to have oil there and lamps ready to go with all her bridesmaids hanging out with her. Um, and you'll see other references to this in different parables of Jesus. And so this boy goes with his wedding party to get his bride and bring her home with him. And her role was simply to keep oil in the lamp and wait in expectation that her, her day of fullness was coming and that soon her life was going to begin. And I tell the story of this passage, like this is what's going on here. And this man on his deathbed had never heard this. But on his deathbed, it was revealed to him that the verse that he had held so dear his entire life, that was his favorite verse, his whole life, was not about the end, but was actually about the beginning of a new thing. It was not about a funeral. It was about a marriage. And so his whole life, he's holding on to this thing, thinking it's going to be the end. And then in the end, God's going to do this thing. But it turns out the verse that he loved was about the beginning. It was about the beginning of something new. It was about a marriage. And God had saved that piece of information for the right moment. This is what God does. This is always what God does. Most Christians at most times are missing what God is doing, and it's no fault of their own. Oftentimes, their eyes just can't be opened yet to it. Most Christians at most time are missing what God is doing. Um, but um, we see, but we do not observe. That's how Sherlock Holmes puts it to Watson. <laughs> We see, but we don't observe, right? Um, so there's this poet named Lucy Shaw, and she says, um, here's what she says. Here's a quote from her. Missing our cues, we fail to notice the fingerprints of the creator in the ordinary tex textures and phenomena of living because we are distracted by the daily urgencies. Read that again. Missing our cues, we fail to notice the fingerprints of the creator in our ordinary textures and phenomena of living because we are distracted by daily urgencies. I think she nails it. Our daily urgencies, the constant notifications coming from everywhere, demanding our attention, can keep us from being present with God and keep us from receiving whatever God has for us in that moment. One thing I like to point out about the Old Testament and the way it is written and the way Stephen is telling it as well is that these books weren't written as the events were happening. We like to think that way because today we're writing history as it goes. The Old Testament, a lot of these books were written sometimes hundreds of years after the events. Uh, the historical books, like from Joshua to First and Second Chronicles, some of those events are written up to 400 years after those events happened. And yet, when you read those events, what do you see? 
what you see is they're constantly explaining the meaning of the events as you're reading them. And I want to point out, let, I mean, let, let's read some of these passages. Um, Joshua 4.24 says, He did this so that all peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. It's injecting meaning into something God did. Look at Deuteronomy 29.6. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. God gives them the meaning after he does something. Genesis 26, I kept you from sinning against me. He's talking to them about like something in their past. He goes, hey, you know why I did this? To keep you from yourself. A lot of the meaning in the text is injected later. And I tell, I tell you this to drive a point home. Meaning making, pay attention to this. Meaning making can, meaning making can be done later. It can be done afterwards. We don't have to understand everything in the moment. We don't have to understand everything leading up to it. We don't have to understand everything in the middle of it. The time for the unveiling, the time for the meaning, that time will come. The time for understanding, um, for finding purpose in the whole thing, that will come. The why can come later. In the middle of it, our role is faithfulness and presence and listening, okay? Um, do you know what the meaning of apocalypse is? The meaning of apocalypse, um, you know, people talk about this virus where it's the end of the world, it's an apocalypse. Apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world. That's not what an apocalyptic tale is. Apocalypse is simply, a, it's, it's a Greek word that means unveiling. That's what it is. It's an unveiling. It's an event that happens that unveils things about us, about God, about the world we live, live in, all that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, we are in an apocalypse, aren't we? We're in a time of unveiling. We're seeing all kinds of stuff about ourselves, about us, about our communities, about our leaders. We're learning a lot. It's a time of unveiling. Um, the meaning making will come. We will look back upon things and we will find the meaning and purpose in all of it. Uh, my favorite quote from Soren Kierkegaard, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. So in the midst of a moment, that is not the time when we're making meaning. In the moment, we pray, Christ before me, go before me and be with me. And then Christ go behind me. Give me wisdom from this situation. And we have faith, we, ha we have trust, and we respond from the place of the spirit within us. And a lot of us have been carrying a word or a verse or a single shred of wisdom whose significance will one day be revealed to us. You are carrying something right now that is an instrument, a tool that is not for you, that is for somebody else, and you don't know what it's for yet, and you will find out. Meaning-making will come. One day it will be revealed to you. And in that moment, turn to God and offer up a thank you. Let us hope and pray that in that moment that we are awake, that our eyes are open, that we can see it coming, and that we can grab it by its forehead so that it can leave a lasting mark on us that it can cut deep into us and so that we can grab that Kairos by the hair of his forehead and take glory in that whole moment. All right. Why don't we stop here and take communion? There are two elements in communion. If you have them, 
um, gather them. There is, um, there's the bread, which is the body of Christ, um, broken for you. Um, it speaks of the cross. It speaks of the suffering when his flesh was torn, the, the crown of thorns on his head, his, his back um, whipped and scourged and beaten. His body was broken for you. And the wine symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you. It flowed from seven places on his body. And though in the moment it was, it was excruciating, and though in the moment it was terrible, and, and his people were mourning, and it seemed to be senseless, later on the meaning became clear. That this is how salvation enters into the world. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. And so please take communion and do this um, to remember the sacrifice of Christ. Body of Christ for you, blood of Christ for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Be with us this week. Guide us forward. Help us to be present in the bad times so that we can uh, understand that somehow you have equipped us for this. Let us, on the other end of it, ponder the meaning of it and look for you in it, for your faithfulness, for your righteousness. Help us to be faithful people to you and to you alone. Christ is Lord. Caesar is not. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Let's end this morning with our collect prayer written by our uh, prayer team. Pray this with me. God of resurrection, who has the power to raise the dead to life, make us one body with hearts that burn for what concerns you. Help us to comfort those who grieve. Be with our healers and caretakers as they tend the sick. Protect them and give them fortitude for the duration. Still our anxious hearts and minds as we focus on you, God. You who raised Christ from the dead, bring new life, new purpose. Out of many, make us one, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. I hope uh, this has blessed you in some way. Reach out to, uh, to your friends, to your family, to your loved ones. Find out what their needs are. Allow yourself to be broken and poured out to meet them. Grace and peace, Watermark. Love you all. And uh, we'll see you soon.